How is the volume? Can you hear back there? Good. So today I wanted to talk about effort, right effort, wise effort. And you may think that I'm going to give you this talk because I'm going to exhort you to try harder. Try harder. (laughs) You're not trying hard enough. But that's not what I'm going to say. But I do want to give you a little bit of a framework in which to think about this whole question of effort and what's involved with it. And the first thing to know, of course, is that it is required in order to liberate the mind. And the Buddha talks about this over and over again. He does exhort people to effort and you know, make an effort. And if you look at his very last words as he was passing away, uh, you know, the last thing that he said was to his uh, disciples who were surrounding him was, strive on with diligence. You know, basically, it's up to you. It's all up to you. It's in your hands whether you liberate your mind or not. So he's really clear that effort is required. And wise effort, of course, is the sixth step on the Eightfold Path. And it's the beginning step of the concentration uh, aspect of the Eightfold Path and is followed by wise mindfulness and wise concentration. And like every other step of the Eightfold Path, it needs to be considered within the totality of the path. So in particular, particular, when we're examining wise effort, we need to think of it in conjunction with wise view, which is basically the Four Noble Truth framework uh, of the Buddha's explanation of things, and wise intention. And the wise intention piece is important, and I'll be getting back to that uh, in some more detail. You know, if you remember that wisdom is what liberates us from delusion, from the mind states that obscure um, the radiant mind, you can see how important it is to make some kind of effort. Because if things are completely covered over and there's a mind which is lost in those states of delusion and or is identified with them, you never kind of get underneath it. You never go below that level of confusion. So something has to happen. Something has to happen that has to do with us marshalling our resources and directing them in a particular way. So in order for there to be wise effort, there has to be energy or virya. And this quality of energy or virya can exist in either wholesome or unwholesome forms. It's kind of neutral in and of itself. So, for instance, if you're 
not to pick on one particular group of people who have been in the news lately, but you know, if, if you consider that energy or virya was expressed by uh, the banking industry in uh, you know, what was going on in the, the run-up to the global economic collapse, a lot of energy was going on there, uh, unwisely uh, and unwholesomely directed, but there was plenty of energy, there was plenty of effort. But then effort can also be seen in things that are clearly very wholesome. For instance, um, the Dalai Lama's uh, multi-generational work to try to do something about the situation uh, in Tibet. Right, that kind of like continually application of uh, effort in a particular direction in order to try to accomplish something that's good and wholesome. So the energy piece in and of itself is neutral. So it's all how we apply it, how we direct it in this process of wise effort. So the kind of effort and energy we're employing here is effort directed to bring forth wholesome states of consciousness, which are directed then to liberation from suffering. And this wise effort works with the other parts of the path, as I've previously said. And the Buddha talks about the four great endeavors, four efforts that we have to make. And I alluded to this the other night when we were talking about the hindrances. The first of these is preventing the arising of unwholesome states. And I think I mentioned that uh, if concentration and mindfulness are strong, those states don't arise, right? The hindrances are less likely to arise in the mind. The second of these great endeavors is abandoning unwholesome states when they have arisen. And I said, okay, when we're working with the hindrances, when those are on the top and are predominant in our experience and we're we're addressing them, we're, we're present with them, that's the second step, the second of these four endeavors. The third is arousing wholesome states. And how, how do, is that done? Well, that's done in the process of, for instance, following the meditation instructions and trying to uh, uh, establish uh, mindfulness with the four foundations of mindfulness. Or it's done in the practice of metta, where we're summoning up this kind, uh, friendly mind we're summoning forth wholesome states. And then he, the fourth of these is uh, calling on us to maintain and increase wholesome states of mind that are already present. And how is this done? Well, by continuing the kind of practices that uh, I just described, mindfulness practice and uh, the Brahma-Vihara practices, uh, maintaining sila, and in the process of mindfulness alone being present there, there's automatically a strengthening of these states. That's part of the magic of mindfulness, is that it uh, fertilizes uh, and supports the growth of what we want to have, 
present in the mind for our own well-being and happiness. So this whole way of thinking about things, you know, that we're doing these four things, um, it doesn't create enlightenment. It clears out the debris that keeps us from realizing what's true. So a slightly different emphasis. It's not that we're doing things to make ourselves be enlightened. It's in the clearing out of what obscures or closes off our connection with the truth that awakening happens. So, you know, we need to focus and apply ourselves. We need to make choices and follow through with them and engage with our experience in order to wake up. So there needs to be effort and it needs to be sustained effort, but it needs to be wise effort. And there's a story that uh, is in the suttas that kind of illustrates some of the uh, delicacy of this question of, well, is it wise effort? And as the story goes, there was this uh, bhikkhu, this monk, um, who was very committed to practice. And it sounded it sounds like he was a relatively new monk, right? But he was, he was going at it full tilt. It was uh, enlightenment or bust. And his sister, who, you know, seemed to have some ongoing contact with him, uh, was observing how he was practicing over time and what was what was happening with him, and she was she was watching watching him make this effort and strive, you know, and strive and strive and strive and strive. And in particular, uh, one day she observed him doing walking meditation. He was walking barefoot and he was walking on this rocky ground. And he was cutting his feet all up, and he was like bleeding all over it. <laughs> and, you know, he was determined he was going to continue with his practice. He was going to keep doing his walking meditation. He was going to find liberation of mind. And he wasn't going to give up. He wasn't, you know, going to be a quitter. He was going to really do it. And his sister, who apparently didn't have yogi mind at the moment, went to the Buddha and said, uh, blessed one, uh, <laughs> my, my brother is kind of, you know, starting to go off the deep end a little bit, you know. Uh, is there something that you can do? And so the Buddha went to, to see the bhikkhu and uh, had, a, had a chat with him about his practice. So in, in his former life as a layperson, this bhikkhu, who was apparently a rather uh, gently raised and refined individual, was a musician. And so the Buddha, in talking to him about right effort, said, so, you're a musician, right? And he says, yeah. And, and the Buddha says, well, when you are tuning your instrument, if you key it up too tight, is it in tune? There's a no, Lord. And if you 
don't tighten it enough, is it in tune? No, Lord. And the Buddha said, well, effort is like that. Not too tight, not too loose. Sensitive, responsive to the totality of circumstances. That's what wise effort is. And as we know, in order to tune something correctly, we need to be listening to the note as we turn the peg, right? Unless you're a, you know, a cheater and you have one of those electric guitar tuners. But we haven't figured out how to get that with this practice yet. <laughs> So just like in the case with the monk, it takes time to find right effort because it's not a fixed point, right? It's not an on or off switch. It's kind of custom to the circumstances. So it takes time to find it, an observation of the effects or the consequences of the effort that's being made. Hmm. some kind of feedback loop. The kind of feedback loop that you get through the process of continual observation of what happens as you practice. Right? You're always receiving information back from the practice that you're doing. Now, this whole conversation about uh, right effort is is a little bit dicey sometimes for uh, teachers because there's a lot of overlays that people can have when uh, someone tells them that they need to make an effort. (laughs) Right? You might have a flashback to your third grade report card, you know. Little Cindy is bright, but (laughs) dot, 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 dot. And part of the risk also is that because of our personal and cultural overlays, you might get the idea that what's being said is that uh, you should try harder. You know, because if you try harder, uh, things will go better. And it's not necessarily a question of trying harder. It's trying in a way that's appropriate and sensitive to the totality of circumstances. But we do tend to hear this as try harder, that we're not trying hard enough that we should try harder. And that's because our views in this area are very much shaped by our own cultural assumptions and values. And when I say uh, cultural assumptions and and values, I'm talking mostly about Western culture. And I know we're not all from Western culture here, so uh, please indulge me in this conversation. Because many Western cultural values have all also gone to parts of the world that aren't Western, right? And you'll see when I talk about some of these views of that influence our, our basic approach to things, that you can, you can see this uh, 
in Asia now, many places, uh, China being predominant among them. So some of our uh, cultural views and values around things include the idea or the belief that we're in control or should be in control of what we experience. Right? Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, you make your own reality? Or, uh, you know, the power of positive thinking or, you know, if you just, uh, you know, believe that it's so, then it will be so. Or that if you really try, if you really, really strive, you can get things to conform to, you know, your wish. A second idea that we have, or uh, a view, is that we have a very consumer-oriented way of looking at things, right? Does it measure up to standards? Is our experiencing measuring up to standards that we have? We also tend to have a desire to protect and enhance the egoic self-sense, by controlling what we experience, right? I mean, if you watch watch TV, uh, I won't mention particular shows because then I would have to disclose to you that I occasionally <laughs> view them. But <laughs> I consider it research. <laughs> I don't want to give you the wrong idea. <laughs> but, you know... Why would you want to be Donald Trump's apprentice? (laughs) So another thing we believe is the assumption that pleasant is the most reliable and important measure of the value of experience and of success, right? That if it's going... If the right thing is happening, it will feel pleasant, it will feel good. And if, you know, you can see the converse of that. If it's not feeling pleasant, if it's not feeling good, there's some, we're doing something wrong or we're somehow in error. Like something is awry that perhaps we're responsible for. So these are all part of our way of thinking and proceeding about things. And so if we drag these into Dharma practice, we're going to have some interesting repercussions. Because if you remember what I said at the beginning of the talk, I said, well, you know, you have to think of this wise effort thing in conjunction with uh, wise intention. And if you remember what wise intention is, it talks about the cultivation of renunciation the cultivation of metta, or loving friendliness, the cultivation of uh, karuna, or compassion. Which is another way of saying uh, renunciation is letting go of the consumeristic desire to get something as a primary orientation to life. Metta is letting go of placing our egoic self-sense at the center of the universe. 
And compassion is being willing to be present with suffering and unpleasant experience with a kind desire to relieve it in ourselves and others. Well, ooh, that's pretty different, huh? So these are the intentions that we're cultivating in Dharma practice. So if these aren't exactly uh, oppositional, a 180 to our uh, cultural view, or they're at least at right angle, right? That's, we're talking about a different uh, uh, place for the needle on the compass to go when we're talking about wise intention. Quite different from the mainstream culture. So if we're unconscious about these, these uh, common cultural views that we may have uh, incorporated in our own way of looking at things and we proceed from them, then our practice is going to tend to have strands of uh, trying to gain control of the situation through exerting effort. Right, So kind of uh, thinking of mastery as being related to an act of will in some kind of way. We're going to have a consumer orientation towards Dharma practice. You know, thinking of it in terms of like getting goodies, uh, whether that's, uh, you know, a state of calm or whether that's uh, clarity or um, whatever. Our ego can get very tied up in Dharma practice and can be easily threatened by what we experience in Dharma practice if it's operative there in an unseen way, kind of at the center of what's going on. And the assumption that pleasant is the most reliable and important measure of how the practice is going and whether the practice is worth anything can creep in. So then we've got the situation where we have this task that's challenging enough to try to do, right? To sit and be present and mindful of experience. And then on our shoulder we've got this, uh, you know, little voice with the scorecard that's going, oh, yeah, not doing very good. I don't think this is good. This feels really bad. I must be doing something wrong if this feels so bad. You know, I can't remember how to do this. I'm not sure about this stuff. Does this stuff really work? You know, I should be feeling better if it was working. You know, I would know. <laughs> so it's a formula for frustration and a lack of practice if it's not seen and made conscious. And it becomes a standard for whether or not the practice is working, whether we're doing it right. So, you know, we're, we're looking at it then in terms of things like, are we getting what we want out of it? Does it meet our expectations? Does it conform to our uh, understanding of what should be happening or of a particular map that we've read about or a particular satisfactory experience that we've had? Are we feeling in control of what's happening? You know, are we on top of it? Are you on top of your practice? Are you on top of it? 
how do we stack up against the other imaginary yogis? Yeah? Anybody have comparing mind arise? No, none of you. Oh, he looks so calm. <laughs> it's always very illuminating at the end of retreats when you, you get a chance to break silence and actually talk with each other. <laughs> because, well, you'll see the power of projection, let's put it that way. So then the question, you know, am, am I having a good time? You know, is this pleasant? And this becomes the internal kind of report card. And we try to improve our grade, you know, using these measurements, trying to get the experience that we're having to conform to these kinds of standards and making more and more effort and becoming more and more miserable in the process of trying to do this. I had... uh, I met some, some people a couple years ago at a wedding, and you know, you sit around wedding you know, tables and the, the reception stuff, and you get to talking with people, and get, get, it's really interesting. And this is a middle-aged couple, and they had a couple kids, and they had, they had a, a parrot, too. And uh, they were talking about how every year they drive down from the Northeast, they drive down to Florida, uh, in the car. And, you know, for those of you who have kids, you know, kind of, or were a kid once, you remember what it's like to drive long distances with children in a car, right? And they said uh, the second time they made the trip in the car with the kids and the parrot, the parrot was going, Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Right? And our minds can kind of be like that, you know. Are we there yet? You know, we keep coming out of the meditation, out of, you know, immersion in the process of actually experiencing and doing to evaluate, you know, whether we're there yet, whether it's going on the way that we think that it should be present. So the paradox of this whole business of making effort is that often we don't need to try harder or make more effort at all. Because it's not about trying harder in many cases. Because if you look at it, we do a lot of trying, right? You're all doing a lot of trying, I know you are. And we all do, all the time. And this is part of how we relate to reality. And if you look at some of the ways that we do try, you'll see that we try to edit the present moment. We try to make what's happening right now and what we imagine uh, will happen in the future conform to our preferences. We try to follow after what's pleasant. We try to push away what's unpleasant. We Try to zone out when it's not interesting. So we work really hard, and a lot of the effort that we make is basically struggling with reality as it actually presents itself. 
So there's plenty of effort. It's just often misdirected. We're making constant effort to edit, shape, revise, remake, reform, secure, hold on to, pursue, capture, improve, own, control, ignore, shut out, redirect, and otherwise control things. And that's all of us. You know, and this is kind of tiring after a while. But it's certainly not a lack of effort. And if it worked, that would be great. Then all the effort would be worth it. But the problem with the strategy is that it doesn't work. Because our preferences aren't what's determinant. So things manifest the way that they do because of cause and conditions, not because of our will. So, you know, attempting to oversteer is uh, futile and stressful too. You know, it's kind of like uh, going around in one of those uh, uh, merry-go-rounds that have like the little cars on them. You ever see those? Or the... You know, where there's like the little cars and the kids can get in and they have a little wheel that turns. You know, and the little kids are turning the wheel and turn. <laughs> well, we're turning the wheel, but, you know, it's not necessarily connected to what's happening, but there's just enough correspondence sometimes that, you know, it gives us encouragement. Right? We turn it to the left and sure enough, the merry-go-round is it's going to the left. So what's actually needed is sensitive, responsive effort. So this leads me to another major point, which is maybe what's needed isn't so much more effort, but a consideration of the role of letting go, surrender, and non-clinging in our understanding and in our practice. Letting go, surrender, and non-clinging. Ooh, the non-doing. The non-doing. Now, just in the, the way, way that encouragement to make effort can kind of land on, on ears, it's like, I don't want to make more effort, or I'm making plenty of effort, or I feel guilty I'm not making enough effort. This particular one, talking about surrender or letting go, this can also kind of land in an interesting manner. And I know when I was first in Dharma circles and was hearing this language of uh, letting go and surrender, I actually felt quite a lot of aversion to this. Because I had, this is my, my, uh, my cultural associations with this, this concept. Um, <laughs> this is a little embarrassing now. So to me, these phrases sounded a little bit like uh, giving up, uh, getting rolled over, being defeated, uh, becoming some sort of passive blob of a person who let life run over them, uh, being weak and unwilling to take action and maybe lacking courage and initiative. So that tells you something about the conditioning that I had when I first heard 
these concepts, right? It, it wasn't exactly something that you would like want to encourage in yourself, right? Surrender. That sort of, sort of sounds like uh, running the white flag up the flagpole, right? And you know, handing over your sword uh, or something to surrender the army. But as I came to understand, that really isn't what was meant by the phrase. So it took me a while to understand, and this is, was through uh, direct observation, of trying every other means uh, until I <laughs> had to try this. Which is how we usually do it, you know, right? We'll try and try and try and try with the strategies that are familiar and that we know, and then finally we'll get to a point where it feel, sort of feels like a dead end, and then our minds are a little bit more open to another view or approach. So it took me a while to understand that letting go actually referred to the release of futile resistance to things as they actually existed and were manifesting. That it meant something like opening up to what was happening and allowing it to move as it was going to anyway. (laughs) Acting in a way that was sensitively connected to this kind of creative vitality that is part of the manifestation of impermanence. So letting go means operating from the base of clear seeing and not from specific preferences which are at variance with what is actually happening. In other words, learning to rest in what is, the knowing of what is. It means seeing the Dharma, the truth, the truth of things as it manifests in our direct experience and taking that as the starting point, the foundation for action rather than acting on conditioned desires which are fighting with the truth. Moving away from a pattern of resistance to reality to a balanced opening to it. Sensing the grain of things you know, just like the grain of of a piece of wood, and then going from there, working with it, learning to work with connection with things, and not oppositionally. So what can we let go of, and what do we need to let go of in order to be happy? Suffering. We need to let go of suffering. Which is the painful pattern of attempting to control, fabricate, avoid, pursue, which is operative both on subtle and and gross levels in the mind. And we start to begin to let go of suffering by coming to understand delusion when it arises, which causes craving for things to be a certain way that they cannot be in the moment. 
It doesn't mean that we don't have impact on the world and that we can't set direction and cause things to happen. It just means that when it's there, it's there. Right? And flailing around in relationship to what's there is suffering. Ajahn Chah, who was a great Thai forest master, uh, has a rather well-known quote that you've probably heard. And he says, if you, if you want to be happy, you need to learn to let go. If you let go a little, you get a little peace. If you let go completely, if you let go completely, But it's a really big jump to let go completely, isn't it? Because even though we can see that that's skillful, that that's how we can come to rest, it's almost as if we're uh, so conditioned to clenching and clinging and holding on to it's habitual, right? It's a big jump to let go completely. And there's a deep and maybe even instinctual tendency on our part that makes it difficult to surrender. You know, as biological beings, we kind of have to scramble to keep the whole show going, right? And we kind of generalize, perhaps, from that survival instinct to always be on the prowl, always looking, always trying to get, always looking for danger, always unsettled. But let's look at some of the places where letting go might be possible, places where it might be easier for us to see the holding and resistance and begin to release it. So we can practice letting go of wanting something different. Craving and aversion. We can come into being willing to be present with what's happening. Accepting what arises in experience and opening to things as they are without trying to edit them. And I want to emphasize in talking about about this a point that I made earlier, which is this is about sensitive connection to things, right? And what skillful effort or skillful opening has to do with the totality of circumstances, including the resources that you have on hand in your practice at any given moment, right? So a head-on charge into things is not necessarily the skillful thing all the time. Sometimes the skillful thing is backing off and regrouping. Sometimes the skillful thing is redirecting. But it comes out of uh, connecting with what you're experiencing and then saying, oh, 
this is too much right now, this is too close right now, a more skillful way to work with this now is a cross current. It's a cross at not turning the ship directly into it. Sometimes turning the ship directly into it is exactly right. And that's the experience part of it. Another way we can practice letting go of things is to let go of expectations. And becoming aware of desires and wants that are at variance with what's actually present. Opening to these desires as actual objects of meditation. I wish the breath was clear. I wish the breath was clear. I want the breath to be clear. I want the breath to be clear. That's not about the breath anymore. (laughs) That's about the wanting. Another way that we can let go of expectations is by practicing in an open-ended and allowing way. You might notice there's an anticipation of familiarity with things. This can be uh, subtle, especially at deeper levels of practice. Somehow we kind of think that uh, how it's feeling now is how it's going to feel in the next moment or the next moments. Especially if we're having a good stretch where we're going along and it's feeling kind of pleasant and then you feel like the mind's pretty concentrated and it's going good and it's like, oh, it's going, it's just the way it is. It's only going to get better from here. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Noticing when the desire or tendency to control or edit or direct is present. And then opening to this tendency as a meditation object. Seeing the tendency itself. We can practice this letting go in regard to a self-view, how we understand ourselves, our fixed identity, by noticing when things are being experienced in relationship to me. Especially when there's a strong desire to change them to be as we would like them to be. You know, when the egoic self-sense arises and is strong and it's not seen, you kind of know because you start to suffer. Right? Because it it sort of becomes... uh, Anybody know that... uh, maybe, Maybe this isn't a game that's played on playgrounds anymore. Because we... Playgrounds and... The formal activities on playgrounds have gotten a little more gentle, I think, since I was a child. We used to play this game called Monkey in the Middle. Do you remember that? There'd be like uh, one kid between two kids, and the two kids at the end would be like throwing this ball back and forth or something over the head of the (laughs) the hapless child in the middle who would be (laughs) scrambling to try to grab it and get it and keep it. And, you know, it was kind of a hopeless game unless somebody screwed up at one of the ends. But I mean, the ego is kind of like that when it's uh, 
when it's active, right? It's kind of like they're in the middle of everything. It's like this uh, uh, noticeably uh, uh, intrusive uh, element in what you what was previously happening that creates its own kind of centrality to things. It's not necessary to get rid of that at all. That's just what happens when it's present. But notice it when it's there. When we start to experience things in relationship to a me or a self-view or a self-image, you'll notice because all of a sudden the stakes of what's going on in the meditation get cranked way up, right? It's like, I've got to get this. 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 Or the other part of it is, you know, if you're feeling rather inflated at the moment, it's like, I'm a really good yogi. (laughs) I'm a really good yogi. I've really got this now. I'm probably the best yogi (laughs) in the room, you know? So in letting go of this fixed self-view, you can also notice when there's a feeling of a threatened self which needs to be protected and which needs to control from moment to moment. And when these arise, that's all fine too because they're just another arising. You can actually uh, turn towards them and use that experience of seeing this surfacing of this self-sense as a meditation object. We can practice letting go by releasing any unskillful desires to be free from desire. Wanting to be free from desire, from entrapment and desire is a skillful thing, right? Yes. And it's kind of paradoxical that the very act of trying to get free from craving can become a stumbling block to our liberation if we're unwilling or unable to acknowledge in a very neutral kind of matter-of-fact way that craving is in fact present. And how do you know when craving is present? Because you get the burn. You know, trying to get rid of craving by an act of will is usually uh, futile. So this takes us back to one of our previous letting goes, which is... And that's one of the things that the Buddha found out through his whole period of extreme asceticism where he nearly starved himself to death. You know, he was going to kind of like punish himself into not having any desire and... So, you know, reacting to the pain of craving, uh, with craving for its departure is a little bit like trying to get rid of a hangover by, you know, going out on another binge. So it doesn't exactly work like that. Liberation is found through wisdom and insight into how things are and how they work together. So it's more a process of learning how to see relax, and gradually learn to open in a, to a fuller and fuller palette of what can be experienced through all of the sense doors. And when this happens, and it happens consistently, then this cluster of experience that 
kind of constitutes the uh, egoic self-sense, relaxes and releases on its own. It's not that we have to get rid of any kind of self-sense. It's, that's kind of a silly undertaking um, and diluted. So you can relax about that one. So to come back to this question about effort and wise effort and what it is and how to describe it, the right amount of effort is effort directed in a way that's skillful considering the totality of the circumstances. So, as with all definitions, you know, the question always comes, well, define what you mean by skillful and what totality of the circumstances is. How can we increase our understanding of the totality of circumstances? Through mindfulness, through direct contact with things, and through experience. Because in this whole process, we repeatedly fall into too much effort, too little effort, too much effort, too little effort, too aggressive effort, too... Uh, lacks effort, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then if we're more continually present, we see the consequences of different ways of making effort. And it's not like it's a problem. It's a feedback loop. And and eventually the, the needle starts moving closer and closer to the center line of appropriateness or maximal skillfulness, if you want to put it that way. I'll just leave you with uh, an image of uh, wise effort in action. And this is um, something that was sent to me a couple years ago. And it was a video uh, that featured my niece. So, of course, I was, you know, very interested in seeing what it was. But it was kind of an unusual thing because it was a video of something that's called uh, a woodsman and a woodswoman competition. Has anybody ever heard of that? It's like this really uh, alternative kind of uh, competitive thing that's done for uh, students in like forestry schools and uh, landscape architecture schools and that kind of thing, right? So there's all these uh, college-age people competing with each other in a number of different events. Thing, you know, so you see them doing a number of things on this video, like you know, uh, dragging logs with these big pinchers, you know, and racing against each other to go across the finish line, and uh, you know, throwing logs around to see how far they can throw them, and you know, sawing wood and you know, through trees and climbing trees with the you know spikes and the belt and that kind of stuff. But the thing that was uh, most interesting to me was watching this time competition that they had for getting a fire going. So they were starting the fire from scratch, literally. 
So if you imagine this, there, there's like a small pile of wood shavings uh, and a flint, right? So you strike a flint and it creates a spark. You know, so the thought is, well, you, you strike the flint, it creates a spark, it catches fire to the shavings. Okay, the shavings are now smoldering, right? So they're blowing on the, on the shavings to get it going, to get it to burst into flame. And then at this point, uh, they start adding, you know, pieces of wood. But there's a real art to this, right? You have to watch this really carefully because if you think about what's going on, if you're start, trying to start a fire, it's just catching. Maybe it's a little, you know, it's smoky. It's not really going yet. Yeah, you blow on it. You want to give it a little more oxygen. If you blow too hard, it goes out, Right? If you don't blow on it hard enough, it goes out. <laughs> and then when you get to the stage of putting the wood on the fire, well, you know, this is like a, a speed competition. So you want to put the pieces on there that are as big as possible to get the flames really going. But you have to be careful how you place them, right? If you put the pieces on that are too big, it goes out. If you put the pieces on that are too little, <laughs> you know, your, your flames don't catch as strongly as they otherwise would. And so it takes close observation to do it skillfully. You have to pay attention. It's not rote. There's a certain kind of focus and care that had to be committed to the noticing and the doing, sensitive to what's going on and what would work. So if there wasn't enough effort and focus the fire would go out. If there was too much effort and there was greed to, you know, get it going, too much wood shoveled on too early, it would go out. And I thought, always looking for images and metaphors, wow, this is really, this is like a deep dharma teaching here, right here in the video. And it's the same with you. It's like, how do you learn how to do it? By doing it by staying connected with what's happening, by adjusting as needed. And this is the whole process. So not too much effort, not too little effort, just right effort. How will you know? Pay attention and you'll see for yourself. And you'll see in a way uh, that's much more accurate then you could ever be coached by uh, a teacher. So let's sit for a moment here and let the words and images settle.
May the merit of our practice be for the benefit of all beings everywhere and be a cause and condition for our own liberation. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.